The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that wants to prove it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by the spin-off with help from Vodafone Zone. Please welcome your host, Simon Pound. As business thinker Cindy Gallup says, there is a lot of money to be made by taking women seriously. But the reason there's this opportunity is that traditionally, particularly in tech and business, women and women's interests have not been taken seriously. One person that's been creating more space and fighting this battle over the last 20 years is local entrepreneur Janine Crossan. In 2018, it's easy to take for granted the social web, paid independent female voices, and that Teen Vogue is political. But in 1999, it wasn't this way. This was the year Janine founded NZ Girl. It was also just after Google was founded. Janine was already four years into building websites and living online, and saw where things were going with media. NZ Girl went on to be the biggest social magazine in the country and in 2015 was named Best Blog. It was also a business in the time before there was a clear business model for online media. This led Janine to found companies to solve advertising online, research and to found Bloggers Club, one of the first companies around to monetize influencers and more lately to found Flossy. Flossy solves two big problems at once. It helps women find curated and recommended salon services and book them efficiently and effortlessly. And it helps salons drive repeat and new custom, especially in their quiet times. It was an industry ripe for such a service, and it's grown into Australia and the UK with big things on the horizon. To talk the ups and downs, the life of the entrepreneur, and the journey, Janine joins us now. G'day, thank you for coming along. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for being the youngest tech veteran. It makes it sound like a long time ago, saying, oh, Google wasn't even founded. But it's just not that long ago, is it? Well, it depends on your point of view. I'm 40 this year and I started when I was 16, so it's the vast majority of my life. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, yeah. a, a long run in the, the tech industry. What yeah. first attracted you as a 16-year-old to building websites and um, getting into the yeah. internet? Um, Well, I didn't want to stay at school, (laughs) so there was needs must of getting a job. And my first job was working for Information Tools, which are still a really powerful um, software research company today. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was the world's worst employee. (laughs) Ask the guys there, they'll be like, yes, it's true, she was. Uh, And um, I realised that I had a real penchant for for computers in general. So I, I foolishly took that idea and ran with it and went to ATI, as it was called at the time, and tried to study programming. I didn't do very well. I gravitated to the people in the class who were not concentrating whatsoever. Uh, but then went from there to work for uh, briefly Nike and then after that for a web development company. And that's when I first got my teeth into websites. 
and the environment when you came to set up NZ Girl, mm. what, what was it like, you know, what, what was the gap that you saw when you came to do that, to set up that website yourself in your, <laughs> your spare bedroom on an old computer? Yeah, no, was, I, and I remember most of it, and let's keep in yeah, uh, mind that that's 19 years this year, uh, so it's a long time ago. You, and a lot of things I remember. You've got license to mythologise it now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like, well. <laughs> Nobody's alive to remember to tell the story. So. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so many other jokes I can add on that, but I'm just not going to. Uh, we, um, oh gosh, the gap really was. I'd seen a, in a, an article on television on what was ASB Business back then, and they were talking about the the rise of the the interwebs and the impact it was having on the teen market, and that it was becoming a place where peer to peer they could talk to each other. You know, remember this is pre social media, mm. and it wasn't the usage that anybody ever expected it to be because it started as a chat room for techies, and then it became kind of brochureware for corporates, and this was the next iteration of becoming community for human sake mm. <laughs> as opposed to uh, tech sake and uh, we looked at this and they were getting funded up the wazoo out of Silicon Valley in fact I don't think it was even called Silicon Valley at that point was it it was just out of the states yeah. a lot of money was going into this particular venture had had 30 million um, US dollars put into it I looked at that and said well what's happening locally I wonder what's going on in the space of um, of the teen girl market and of course from a publication point of view there was nothing at all we and not even just online we didn't even have magazines we had Clio that was an Australian magazine that had a single New Zealand page which usually had a competition on it mm. uh, and so that's where the idea seeded and uh, went from there and 18 years on, <laughs> that's the journey it went on for a long, long time. What, what was it like um, starting out and making that into uh, a business? Because, I mean, in, in, you know, there have always been um, fan sites and there's always been kind of places where people have talked and shared things online. But to actually make it into like a, a, a business, have contributors, have advertisers, because there wasn't that kind of online space uh, happening. No, and, and I always had the intention of it being a business. I never went into it as a, here's a hobby I'll do on the side as I work for as a um, <clears throat> an account executive for a web development company. Here's my little project. Um, grossly ambitious, always went into the, I'm going to change the world, <laughs> as I do with all my pursuits. And uh, I sat down with my boss um, and I said, here's what I'd like to do. And he said, I think it's a great idea. I think you should totally pursue it because why wouldn't you? You're at the age and stage of your life where you can give things a crack. And mm. if you want to work here part time for a while, do. And I, and I did for a couple of months. And then I went, nah, got to go all at it. Uh-huh. And I made it entirely up as I went along. I'd never, done, you know, never created a business plan before. I'd never employed people. I'd never managed people. I'd, I hadn't written copy. I hadn't sold advertising. I certainly remember walking into my first advertising agency. I think Glenda Wynyard was one of the first people I ever met. As you can probably only but imagine, that was quite a frightening <laughs> proposition. Her and Lou Nash at, uh, at what was it, Mojo at the time? Uh, yeah, that was a, it, was, it was a frightening time because there were a lot of really confident people doing really interesting things that I had never been exposed to before. How did that go, that kind of walking in, like traditionally in, you know, in business, uh, it's been harder for things that have to do with um, teen girls and women to be taken seriously by advertisers. Like still so much advertising is just like this like basic teenage boy, adolescent male that never grew up kind of voice. Sports, beer, car racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all of that. <laughs> and, you know, what, what was it like heading in and saying, take this seriously, buy these ads? Oh, and then ad. 
the internet. Mm. And they'd go, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> yeah, right, the internet. Yeah, no, no, we won't be doing that. Thanks. And of course, that's why the Internet Bureau was created, because none of the agencies wanted mm. to do anything to do with the internet. And so these guys went, here's an opportunity, we'll look after it for you for the, for the token budgets that you want to throw at it. Uh, it's the first, you know, five or so years of that space was relentless. It was just a pursuit of the, of the fittest, really. And um, so I was really that annoying person, as I still am. I turn up. Mm-hmm. I always turn up, and I'm there. And, and I have always had an innate good hustle. <laughs> and it hasn't disappeared. And they, I just sort of figured that eventually they'd ask, who the hell was I? <laughs> Why was I here? And uh, that's... It's kind of the strategy that I employed and it worked. <laughs> and so in building out that business, you noticed like some of the big gaps uh, around the online media place. Um, mm-hmm. Companies that have gone on to be, uh, you, you know, done by other people as well and ended up being huge spaces on the internet, um, like trying to serve ads up on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, independently owned female uh, focused media. Mm-hmm. How, how did that go? What was the opportunity there? Uh, so from a commercial point of view, uh, we, we certainly were all about um, selling the, the advertising, but we from day one, interestingly enough, were about the integrated option. So we, we sold a campaign. So our first advertiser was Johnson & Johnson. I remember getting that call uh, very clearly. I was standing in a shop, Wild Pear, actually, on Queen Street. Weirdly, I remember that. Getting the call from the brand manager at Johnson & Johnson saying, we've got $2,000 and we're going to give it to you to put it into an ad campaign. That was a lot of money for a 20-year-old to be told <laughs> they were going to have. And we hadn't even launched the site. So it was a huge vote of confidence. But what we had sold to them was the idea of this wasn't just about ads and here are the new formats that are coming through, you know, banner ads, and mm. they were pretty skinny little things back then. But it was also here's a competition and we're going to write an article about this kind of, um, you know, how-to on whatever the item was that we were talking about and we're going to go out and create an event around this. And so everything we did from day one, you know, back from 1999, took an integrated approach. Mm. We never, ever went out and just said, we're just selling display advertising. Uh, and it's and it really followed that that th- that theme of uh, how do you you know connect with an audience for for a brand to be able to have a proper brand experience uh, from yeah. day from day one and actually measurable you know people actually enter competitions yeah. and uh, write in comments and the like in a way that uh, C- CPC cost per click or just <laughs> views or whatever who knows yeah well none of that really existed yeah, although yeah. any terminology we were making up as we went along um, but we what was interesting from that was that's how the second business um, 18 limited happened because the amount of data so what I found is I had just screeds of information about an audience and that was really useful and I was able to turn around to the Johnson and Johnsons and the L'Oreal's etc of this world and go is it of interest to you to know what the 18 to 29-year-old female market is doing and spending or how they're whatever? And they go, yes, that was actually quite useful. We don't have that data anywhere else. Mm. And, and so we ended up um, creating a, a research company, and uh, that was it was pretty successful. Yeah, t- tell, me, tell me the story of that. So 18 Limited uh, was a – Spencer Willis and myself set that up. Um, and the idea is that we, we worked with Duncan um, uh, Stewart from, um, oh gosh, what was the name of his company back then? Sorry, Duncan, I can't remember. Uh, he basically had a neurological pathways uh, research business. It was really interesting. And what he had worked out was how you could measure Malcolm Gladwell's idea of the tipping point. Right. How could you look at um, where cohorts of people were talking about a brand and where they're at the stage of the life cycle of a brand's coolness, and the coolness being relevance 
I've never heard of it. It's on its way up. It's the pinnacle of cool. It's losing it. And if you had to sort of measure those markers and to talk to an audience over a period of time, you might actually find whether a brand's actually shifting in its relevance with a consumer base and particularly youth. And it was, was really clever. And then we created that into being uh, 18 Tracker. And 18 Tracker had all the major brands, you know, and Xbox and Vodafone and ASB and all the big corporates who were spending money in this audience all had a retainer-based relationship with us to have their brand constantly tracked to work out how significant they were in their market and whether there were any issues. And was yeah. that one of your first uh, forays into serious investment and then kind of like um, serious corporate uh, side of things? Uh, the investment I had had in NZ Girl already for a couple of years, and um, then uh, from a corporate point of view, it was probably yes, it was probably my first real step into having those sorts of clients as opposed to agencies as clients. We, from the get-go, had to go out and talk to both. Mm. We, we were having to talk to brands and we were having to talk to agencies because we knew that we weren't just going to be able to just chat to agencies. They didn't really want to see us in the first place. Mm. Uh, but it certainly meant we got more exposure to more pieces of um, of an uh, of organisation. So at ASB, we would be right across the spectrum, not just in marketing. We would be in the insights team and uh, possibly across customer service. You know, it went much um, further abroad rather than just campaign management. Hmm. Oh. Tell me about the, the ups and downs in these time periods, because if you're launching in uh, 99, you've got a dot-com bubble to, to hit, and then this uh, this kind of stuff was all happening towards the GFC, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, look, um, my life has been a roller coaster. Uh, every year, it's had something fairly significant happen within it, be it personal or work or both. Uh, and uh, I guess I've always just sort of rolled with the punches because I, I, I most of the time it's interesting. Uh, I, I refuse to sit still. I always have. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily bother me. Uh, I think back in the beginning, it probably made me look a little bit, um, and dare I use this word because I, I don't really like it, but might have probably a little bit scatty. But the reality is it was just about trying to stay relevant because I was in a world where it didn't have any anchors. You couldn't, you know pin yourself to anything and hold on. You, know, you actually just had to continuously morph and evolve and change in order to stay alive. And I don't know if that's actually now any different at all. In fact, I think if we're not all doing that now, then we probably aren't staying relevant and probably shouldn't be in business. It's just that my brand of doing that back then was unusual. Mm. Mm. And, and that kind of um, always having to evolve and change that's something that you've seen with Flossie as well, isn't it? Which is something where you launched with uh, one concept and have evolved it over the years as well. Tell, tell me about like the, the thing that got you to start Flossie. What was the, um, because by now you'd built like quite a platform, uh, had, had successes, had a track record and could kind of do something at quite a scale. Yeah, well, and look, basically I, I'd come out of um, the GFC where I was looking at my wounds. Uh, we had had a, um, a, a masthead ad network which um, had been really successful and then the bottom fell out of the advertising market and we lost literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of contracts in one day um, and, and we had to completely pivot out of that business and we ended up merging it with somebody else and exiting out um, and I ended up with the Flossy brand as part of that and came home from Australia because I've been living there for a couple of years going woe is me for a minute I don't hold pity parties for very long but <laughs> I was having a breather of going okay what next and some research hit my desk and this is in uh, gosh what are we at now this was probably mid 2010 research hit my desk that the post GFC world looked like the consumer had changed their behaviour 
and they were not spending money on services like they used to. Um, so by services, I mean things like cuts and colours and you know, all the things that fall into the salon and spa industry. And I looked at that and went, that's interesting. What am I doing with my own behaviour? Yeah, you're right. I'm not getting my hair cut as often. It's got longer colour I'm still doing because I'm so... I used to go so grey. So <laughs> that was a, I could sort of shape that. And then I went, look, OK, I wonder what's going on further. Went to talk to a few different salons. And this is just my general curiosity. I love how businesses mm-hmm. make money. <laughs> the person that sits down in a restaurant and works out how much money they're making. And, I, um, and uh, realised that there was a real pain point there. That they, they were in trouble. They were having the grab ones of this world rock on up and go, hey, I can fix this problem for you. I'll give you 25 grand by the weekend. And they were. Silver bullet, right? But then having to deliver a thousand Brazilians at below cost and having to do that for the next three months, and it was pretty demoralizing and killing their businesses. Um, so I looked at that and said, there's a better model. And so f- the first iteration of, of um, fl- Flossy in um, beauty services was around being a quiet time appointments website. So we would sell Monday and Tuesday appointments, um, but we wouldn't touch the say Thursday, Friday, Saturdays because they were full price. We were looking at creating better prices around the quiet times in the week. But it was a voucher-based site. Um, it wasn't booking. Um, but we were pretty successful in that. We had a couple of hundred salons working with. Um, we grew up the, you know, the customer base, 10,000, 15,000. Uh, and then I got home, as the story goes, I got home from being on holiday in late October 14. And um, I think I told you the story the other day, Simon, so you'll appreciate <laughs> this. I was more than a little bit dishevelled from head to toe. Uh, everything needed flossing. And I didn't do any of it a month went past and I hadn't had the waxing taken care of my nails are a wreck my hair had grown out and it was you know regrowth everywhere it was not pretty (laughs) it was not where I wanted it to be and I thought to myself if I'm not doing it how on earth am I supposed to be convincing my audience to do this my customers and so um I reinvented it I I sat back and worked through with my CTO my co-founder Stephen and said we're going to figure out how to make this about booking and about convenience and about being able to make that booking in seconds because the only reason I haven't been getting these appointments is I can't be bothered picking out the phone mm-hmm. to make the appointment. I don't want to play phone tag. I don't want to go through all that hassle. I've got too many other things on. So we, we uh, reimagined the business and pivoted it. And at that stage, we were about half a million invested in. And Stephen, being the genius he is, had built us an infrastructure that could easily morph from where we were into something else. So from a website, being able to take those database structures and then create something else. Uh, and so we imagined the two-sided marketplace, mobile only. We very purposely went down the app front. Um, for all the fours and against, you can argue, it was entirely about data and two-way communication and wanting to be able to do that. Uh, raised a little bit of money, but just enough to um, test some theories and then got through the first 18 months, just effectively the two of us. And um, where are we at now? Gosh, we're... Three and a half years since then, we have launched into Australia. We're in the process of launching into the UK. 50,000 customers here, 500 salons, um, annualising about 3 million in revenues coming through it, growing 20% a month. Um, just done a deal with L'Oreal in Australia. Uh, and it's we're about s- just on 6 million invested into the business uh, at the end of the round we're on at the moment. So it's been a huge <laughs> deal since then. Mm. Very full on. Yeah, that's <laughs> massive. Let's let's pull out some of those um, kind of the, the real insights from knowing your customer that you have there, because you've got two customers in this business, don't you? Because you're solving for the salons, helping them drive repeat custom without being a 
deal site and, and losing all their margin, uh, but also for the consumer who's wanting to book these things. And maybe if we jump into what you said about the phone call, like how did you come to, to kind of see that it was picking up the phone uh, that was the pain point? Because I wonder if there's like an awkwardness about when you're calling from something that might give you a little deal or reward points or something. Maybe you don't want to call up and be associated with it. What, what's the kind of like, what's the insight that drives that? There could be that, uh, absolutely. But actually more often than not, it's because... Um, you know, I'm sitting in a in a meeting and I'm in meetings all day and I'm not going to have time to pick up the phone or use their clunky websites with clunky forms that don't allow me to instantly book. And, uh, and then they want you to set up an account and put your password in and do, yeah. a, do a capture. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. God, I hate those things. Why do people still use them? And then you have that second of going, <laughs> maybe I am a robot. Like, I failed this three times. Yeah, like, exactly. This is the darkest <laughs> This is what a robot would ever. do. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, literally, in this, in this, um, you know, the space of three seconds, I can be booking, and I'm going to use the Brazilian word again, mm. because I like to drop it in as often as possible when talking to men. <laughs> it just adds to the amusement factor for me. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, I literally can do it while I was sitting under the table, like just like this, talking to you. Mm. My, my phone's here and I've done it in three seconds. So that's ideal. I'm, I'm looking for convenience in my life. And we're seeing that everywhere. And so when I was seeing the opportunity to move into convenience, it was looking at who was moving into this on-demand economy. And whilst we're, we're technically not on-demand because we're not bringing people to you, we are bringing together two markets um, to you know meet each other's pain points where we've got... This customer that's entirely changed their behavior, they are not booking six weeks in advance. They may well be going to the same salon, and that's great. You can do that through Flossy. But what they are doing is have a frightening level of no-shows at the moment. We're seeing in the traditional bookings, salons up to about 35% of their diaries are churning on a day-to-day basis. Sorry, jump into that for me a little bit. So so what they they turn up in the morning and they think they've got a full day and Mm -hmm. they don't. That's right. And so across the space of that morning, you'll find that maybe half of that 30%, so 15 or whatever, will um, cancel at the last minute, and the other half just won't turn up. Mm-hmm. And you'll see it, I, I see it all the time, sitting in a salon and go, oh, you know, my 130 didn't turn up. Other than the fact that I think it's extraordinarily rude, <clears throat> people out there listening, don't be one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, for, for me, that's an opportunity to pa- fix that pain. Because realistically, if that's a Saturday, and if that's a Saturday before Christmas, and trust me, that happens all the time in this industry, that could be worth a thousand plus dollars to that salon. And these are entirely business uh, businesses who are owner operators. Mm-hmm. You know, they they rely on that money. They have leases to pay. They yeah. have staff to pay, and so they need to become a prepay industry. Except it's very difficult to pay uh, to become a prepay industry without some sort of movement against the, for the entire collective industry, and that's where they've struggled to really push it into, um, on their own basis. And us coming in as a third party can do that for them. So what it means on the other side, you know, you've got the consumer who's no longer booking in advance. They're basically going from booking to getting in 72 hours. And that's because we've moved from saying, I just need a haircut to I want a blow wave because I'm going to an event tonight or I want lash and fills because half of them are gone or I've chipped my gel manicure. It's not... It's not utility-based anymore. It's not just because my hair's growing. It's actually because I want to have a certain look where I mm. want to have these things. Well, an experience, uh, uh, a good experience in your day. 
Well, absolutely. Yeah. Look, everybody does their things for whatever their own personal reasons are. Um, I, I'm here not to judge what mm-hmm. that is and how you choose to fill your life or do your things each to their own as far as I'm concerned but um, we're here to make it easy for you to get those but with the best places who can get you um, in and out the door in the best possible time with the best possible outcome and this is an enormous industry we're talking about isn't it like between um, salon and spa and all of the services and uh, kind of the frequency of use uh, by women who are the predominant um, customers for the app that you're running Mm -hmm. what's the experience been like going out and talking to investors because i know you've got (laughs) you've had great investors come on board and that that, Mm. that's a particular skill of yours but what's the experience like talking to the traditionally maybe in especially the software space male tech focused kind (laughs) of investors and talking them through this opportunity i'm looking forward to simon when i've uh, exited this company and i can get to uh, give back to this industry (laughs) because uh, i want to reimagine early stage investment entirely i think we have uh, and i dare i go down this rabbit hole but i i think we have a problem in the way our um, our angel communities are set up they typically bring in people who've made money in property or in corporate. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've heard the lectures that are given to new angels, you know, gouge down the valuation and get yourself a seat at the board. None of that is about, do you add any value to this business? Can you actually help them to move their idea forward? And so you start off with this, these wonderfully um, enthusiastic, hopeful individuals who are brave enough to leave their jobs and go out and to become entrepreneurs. And then they are partnered with these people who sometimes fill their mind with ideas that they shouldn't be thinking about just yet. Now, I know we're trying to get better and we're getting more incubators and we're getting more people who are, you know, veterans of the industry to to come in and give back. And I'm a big fan of pulling people up with me. We're all about paying it forward. You know, coming back to the early point around investment, you know, Lloyd Morrison being the first investor I ever had in in the year 2000. And he gave me something was a gift. And that was not the the funding, but it was the gift of confidence and credibility and um, self-belief. And it was not about risk and it wasn't about return on investment. It was actually about being able to help other people move forward. And that's what I want to be able to do. And I, and I say this because this is a rant I could go on for for a long time. You know, we've, we talk about this, the $6 million investment in Flossie. That's over 11 rounds of funding. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've been through a lot of rounds of funding uh, with your experience in Vend, and you know how time-consuming they are, right? So you can uh, safely say the last three years of my life has mm. fairly much predominantly been about cap raising. Yeah. therefore says a lot about the quality of my team. And that's, <laughs> and that, that's when you have a... Uh, a proven business model you've got revenue and customers you've got a massive addressable market you don't have competitors in the space you've got a proven track record you've got a great network as well which makes me kind of think as an observer um you know, what if someone didn't have all of your skills and mm. would they be able to to get things off the ground if it doesn't fit like something that the people who are already in the gatekeeper yeah. positions recognise? Look, um, I think a lot of people would have given up a lot long time ago, to be honest. Uh, and it's not that it hasn't caused me a fair amount of pain. It's caused me an enormous amount of pain. <laughs> it's been uh, the story of my life. I, I appreciate this is the story of my life. Mm. And that's why I remind myself this is just my story. This will make a great book one day. Um, But there are times that are incredibly frustrating where, you know, I meet people all the time who absolutely wholeheartedly get it. Um, 
And as a beautiful example is the lovely, lovely Lane Jager, who's a new investor in Flossie, and he's ex-CEO of Zespri. Um, obviously a phenomenally successful New Zealand business. And I, I met him because he's also an investor in my husband's business, Spring Sheep Milk Co. And uh, I just, I got to meet him. I love the way he thought. Uh, he was all about the re- relentless pursuit of bottlenecks and removal of them. And I went, oh, well, we're going to get on great. That's exactly how I think about my world. And uh, I sat down with him and when he got his head around about my business, he was, he was, he was fascinated because he did start off with, I'm not sure I understand this space because it's the natural inclination for men to go, mm. I don't get Brazilians, so therefore I won't understand it. And again, there's me throwing in the Brazilian word just to throw guys. <laughs> I like to get you all very comfortable with it. And um, then uh, once he spent more time investigating it, he went, this is a phenomenally interesting business. There's a $15 billion that's spent on services across Australia and New Zealand. There's a billion dollars in New Zealand alone. We have habitual customers created in 44 days. It's someone who's bought four times. That is not functional. They, they average their spend you know, two times a month with us for a new thing of way of doing it. You know, some these women are spending upwards of $5,000 a year in, this, in the category. So it's just a phenomenal metrics that run around it. Mm. As of course, <clears throat> he did as a lot of people do when they first get excited by Flossie, if they haven't already from the day dot, you know, written it off. Um, he went, I think I can take this to a whole variety of people and, and, and they will get it. Because he didn't believe me when I said that you will get people go, I don't get it, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And he did, one after the other. People just went, I don't get it, I'm out. The thing I love about this is that um, these are people often who, um, you know, numbers people are often uh, people who are making investment decisions. Mm. But if you're looking for like the, the most important kind of demographic number in the world, there are more women than men. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and they're really We're, good at spending and, money. And, 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 and women access these services at a much uh, more frequent rate than men access these services so it's like well you know take you and times it by six and then you've got an idea of the market size for these things but yeah so so it's that's that's an interesting journey and i and i know from talking to like cindy gallup about these things as well she was saying that the only thing that she can see as a solution is to make her own fund because until you have um enough funds with the gatekeepers you you Mm. don't you who understand the market you don't get it hey look i i treat it a little bit like sexism right um i come across it all the time i've had some absolutely appalling and horrific things that have been said to me over the years and i've chosen to to just focus on the people who bring good to the table and i i go thank you for pointing out that you're that person that you are there i don't need to have you in my world great to know that up front awesome so when i you know we get an email back that says i'm bald i don't get it i'm out <laughs> and i'm i'm quoting verbatim yeah. a response from a male investor <laughs> i just go no worries mate <laughs> sounds fine to me i'll focus on the ones that don't spend time thinking about it from that point of view mm-hmm. and so now with the the momentum happening at the moment uh the expansion into melbourne and the uk they're exciting markets i mean yeah you melbourne with with four million the size of new zealand in such a contained market and such a kind of sophisticated market yeah. and and the uk with you know 50 plus million people in such a small area yeah, it's really interesting. So, so Melbourne for us is uh, is kind of an additional test, um, as I'm sure you've found in the past. What inevitably happens in investment, people go, oh, "That's really nice what you've done in New Zealand." A kind of small pat on the head, but until you've taken it into Australia, we're not really necessarily going to take it all that seriously. You've got to be able to prove that you can transfer from one to the other. I'm like, okay, let's do it again. Off we go. 
So it's an extension of the the proving of the business case. Uh, And for us, it's specifically around testing this concept of coupling products and services together, which is kind of the next iteration of Flossie. But the London market, in spite of the the hideous jet lag and time zones that go with working (laughs) across the world, what I get so excited about is it's really similar to New Zealand in a whole variety of ways at a consumer level. Um, The salon industry is really similar. Um, and then what we have is a first-generation player up there um, with Treatwell, who's been doing over $100 New Zealand um, million dollars a year in revenues, has exited for just under a half a billion dollars. So they've got a whole heap of early-stage investors who've done well out of it. Um, but it's effectively group on with the booking button. So the market is absolutely ripe for a premium artificially intelligence, deep personalization-led offering like Flossy. Um, and it's a really wonderful time. They are, are keenly pursuing female founders, so are being welcomed with open arms. We're getting passed from one person to the next for you need to meet, this person's going to get behind you, here's how you can make this happen. Uh, and so I can see that the opportunity to raise money and, of course, the way their tax systems are set up, there's a whole lot of reasons why family offices, et cetera, get behind investing in, in early-stage businesses. So it's ripe for it. Mm. And I just look at it and go, oh, <laughs> I've been waiting my entire life for this. Because I, you know, my one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't take myself out of the market when I was 22 and had all these wonderful ideas before anybody even thought about what the internet was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get out of New Zealand. So as I say to myself now, what's my excuse? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And 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 if I look at those ideas, uh, researched, coupled with the biggest brands. Uh, uh, online masthead advertising uh, service, all of those things have become billion dollar businesses for people who, if you'd started that in London in 2002 or something yeah. and had Xbox <laughs> and um, you, you know, Johnson & Johnson as clients, yeah, yeah <laughs> It's the journey. It's the journey. Um, it's, it's character yeah. building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have so much character now. <laughs> and, and, and along those lines, there's a couple of questions that we ask everyone about. Um, you know, you you must have lots of um, yeah, well, we try not to say young, but you know, entrepreneurs starting out because age is not you know the important thing. But yeah, Are you, you must have, because I'm nearly nearly forty. No, 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 no. For entrepreneurs, just to get rid of that idea that the only people who should start being entrepreneurs are young. Like yeah. so, for entrepreneurs starting out, whatever age. Yeah. Um, what, what do you tell them when they ask you, you, you know, um, what, what's your advice for an entrepreneur starting out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I actually just uh, reconciled the, an, an entrepreneur just recently on my trip up to the London last month. Uh, it was that whole concept of letting go of the 20-year-old entrepreneur inside me that's been driving the, the, um, the bus for a long time and calling all the shots and actually embracing the 40-year-old inside me who's a heck of a lot more wise, probably a bit calmer. Mm. Um, and actually that was quite a... It's quite a revolutionary moment in my head. I was like, interesting. Mm -hmm. But anyway, where I go with that, the reason why I go with that is um, passion, I think, is what drives you the most when you're 20. Passion and enthusiasm. And those are fantastic things to have uh, on your side because we all know that a lot of people lack that. Mm -hmm. And so that usually is what gets you out of bed in the morning uh, and to go on a relentless pursuit. The art of making it up as you go along has to be the most uh, important piece that you're comfortable with and you'll see this in your businesses uh, I've seen this in mine you, your team are divided into those who are completely comfortable with doing so and those who are not and that is what it enables you to move forward or not if you don't have people who can do that 
they're probably not going to work well in an entrepreneurial environment. Is certainly in the early stages of it. You, you know. Yeah, yeah that, that's fascinating. Yeah. And you know, so many things that you've said today remind me of things that are in that Masters of Scale podcast series by uh, Reid Hoffman um, of uh, Grayscale Partners. Oh, no, I'll go and yeah, so, yeah, so listen. He did a fantastic thing about. Um, uh, African American um, skincare never having been taken seriously, and because you know the, the white investors didn't understand, you know this. Yeah. And he did another fantastic one uh, about about that exact thing at um, Netflix, where they had to rehire their entire um, staff base essentially to be people who could move to uh, live with uncertainty and evolve from being a DVD seller to um, mm-hmm. an online video platform. And it was, it was like, you know, people who are happy with that uncertainty carry on and people who aren't aren't ready for a changing business, but can be very good, of course, in stable business. Absolutely. And, and that's the understanding of the different dynamics of where yeah. you're at within the business stage, but where we are at an example, when you're, you know, you're still reliant on investment in, in order to get to where you're going. And, you know, we're probably still two years off at that break even point. And that's only dependent if we, you know, stop at Australia, but mm. we're not, we're going to go to the UK, so therefore more fun. Yeah, and you can break yeah. it even any time. You just you know stop growing. Exactly. You just give up the opportunity. Look, New Zealand would be um, break even if we if we decided we weren't going to do anything mm. else. But I'm not interested in a you know five million dollar New Zealand business. It's, that's that's not what I'm after. Mm. I'm after a much larger business than that. Uh, as I'd hope everybody else on this journey. But it is about the the constant battle of getting people to continuously get out of their own way to move forward. And so if you're in that space of wanting to go and do something, the first thing I encourage people to do is to fall out of love with their ideas because we are so encouraged to be passionate about them and so we go all in on them but then we also tend to get a bit blinded by the glory of it and the beauty of it and in fact it's about living with the worst case scenario so if, if at all if we ran out of funding right and I couldn't keep doing flossy the worst case scenario is my team had extraordinary experiences they go on and get better jobs probably get paid more than they do now and it becomes part of their story um the people who put money into this is part of the high-risk nature of putting money into it. I, I, don't get me wrong, that's not what I want as an outcome. Mm. Um, but they're all high-net-worth individuals who, who aren't going to um, not be able to you know, have their retirement. That's not where that funding comes from. And, and so it really comes down to me licking my wounds and my little ego and can it handle that the, the vision and the dream couldn't come true? Well, actually, I go, well, maybe it'll be part of my story. So once you've got comfortable with that, you go, okay. I can do this and I can pursue it without fear. And I think that is what we all need to have uh, in order mm. to do it because that's why I have more written on my wrist and it's why I can push myself past normal levels of, of be it stress or concern because I kind of have this faith that it, we will get there. And does being released from that fear of of failure help you do more? Like, is that the, the, the key thing there? Like, is it yeah. the, the fear that stops you from making the brave enough position or the brave enough move. Yeah, totally. Fear doesn't operate in my business day to day, an ability to to get stuff done. It it, it cannot. And if it did, it would hold us back. I have to work from a a point of view of we are going to globally dominate in the premium curation space uh, of selling. We'd be the first in the world to market services in the way that fashion has, um, has, has happened. So that's what I do. And that doesn't look like... But just be careful how you go about it in case you fall over. <laughs> no, 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 no. And do you have any words you live by? Are there things like or little mottos you tell yourself when things get tough or things you come back to? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> uh, probably history tells me it works out in the end. 
because that's what the eight, last 18 years can tell me is that if for all the you know, A to Z via every letter in the alphabet, try, don't try to do too many of them twice. <laughs> um, this too shall pass. Uh, you know, just lots of little yeah. things that, that I just give myself. Um, and I, you know, don't hold a pity party for long. Um, but then, you know, sometimes you do. You go home and have a big old ball bag for 30 minutes and then the husband goes, here's a glass of wine. I go, sweet as, and then go for a run around the block. Uh, probably not after the glass of wine. But <laughs> and then you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you move on. So I think I got about six or seven into there for you. <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey, Janine, thank you so much for coming on. Janine Crossan, the, the CEO, founder of Flossy Serial Entrepreneur. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. It's nice to be able to share these stories. Yeah, and if you haven't checked out Flossy, do jump on and, and have a play. Uh, it's a fantastic app and service that um, provides value for both the user and the salon so two use cases there thanks thank you very much Alice Webbledale for producing and thank you very much for listening uh, if you'd like to send any feedback recommend anyone for the podcast uh, or just say hello look me up on Twitter at Simon underscore Bound. you've been listening to Business is Boring presented by Simon Pound all this was brought to your ears by the spin-off and Vodafone Zone. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.